0: You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R dot net. And use the code
1: boncoeurcitycast20.
0: Hear that? Believe it or not,
1: summer is just around the corner.
0: Last year, Portland saw the highest number of traffic fatalities since 1986, and 27 of them were pedestrians. That's despite efforts from both the city and the state declaring a priority to make our streets more accessible and safer. So today on CityCast Portland, we're talking with Sarah Iannarone, executive director of the Street Trust about why these numbers keep going up and what needs to happen to get us on a better multimodal path, including the tough choices we'll have to make to pay for it all. It's Thursday, February 8th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. You know, this uptick in traffic-related deaths, it's not a new issue facing our city. It's been building. I mean, we had you on last year to talk about similar stats we saw in 2022. Why do you think we haven't been
1: able to do anything about it yet? There are multiple reasons. I still think we haven't pulled out of the pandemic general sense of malaise and aggravation that seems pervasive. Uh, And we've seen that in, in reckless driving and behavior of people operating motor vehicles for DUIIs. This is something that became apparent to me um, toward the end of last year. Uh, We had been talking an awful lot about the intersection between people experiencing houselessness and being killed in traffic, and Multnomah County Health Department released a report, and that operating a motor vehicle under the influence uh, emerged as a factor in this. Oregon was sixth worst in the nation for DUII and traffic fatalities. So one of the things I also learned is that this is not just people driving under the influence of alcohol, as you know. We have a situation in Oregon where there are many substances that people are using and abusing, and that compounded when people consume alcohol is creating really Dangerous conditions on our roadways. So that's one factor that folks might not be aware of. Two is street design. We have engineered most of our streets and roads for the fastest throughput of motor vehicles as possible. And then you add on top of that, it's always follow the money. It's a conversation about how are we going to get resources to transform these deadly streets to change human behavior and to retrofit a system that was designed for one set of behaviors to make that functional, safe, accessible, and affordable for whole different sets of behaviors. And the paradox in that is that if we're meeting our goals with regard to multimodal infrastructure, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, reducing the amount that people have to drive, our transportation resources continue to dwindle. So it's... Just a bit of a vexing problem. Um, Well, what if you had all the
0: resources and power? Like, what would be your first action to get uh, traffic deaths numbers down? I mean, aside from banning all cars and forcing pedestrians to wear reflective clothing after dark.
1: I probably wouldn't even (laughs) do that. You know, I I haven't really moved away from the anti-car crusades, because honestly, the way our land use patterns are unfurling and it's not getting any better with what Tina Kotek is proposing for the 2024 legislative session, expanding UGBs, right? Mm -hmm. There's an unintended consequence in that infrastructure is expensive and sprawl is expensive. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about expanding urban growth boundaries, and then you try to have a conversation about war on cars, that is now becoming an equity issue because the people who can least afford to go without mobility are being displaced further from the margins, having longer commutes, longer distances to travel to schools and worship. And they, they're living in transit deserts, right? So we're not even investing in the whole smart growth principles that have undergirded Oregon for 50 years. But that aside... You know there are so many people who drive of necessity because transit service doesn't serve their neighborhood or doesn't serve them where they need to go. Thank you for noting that because I,
0: I, I'm talking about the well, let's just ban all cars. And I said that kind of cheekily, but I also said it because I feel like that's a big part of the conversation when I hear people who like I would I'll say transport bros. You don't have to, but I will Transport bros. Um, and I feel like a, a big piece of that equation or the consideration of people who live in these transportation deserts, who live uh, below poverty means, like we have to think about, uh, you know, lower income, people of color, and not everyone could just like, you know, buy a bike, hop on a bike, get on a bus. It's just, it's not a feasible uh, option. And I feel like we have to meet people where they are. So hearing you say that is uh, comforting,
1: I would say, (laughs) reassuring. Well, you know... This has been really the large part of my work for the last two years, Claudia, is making sure that our advocacy matches the needs of the most vulnerable system users. We can't allow any particular group to dominate decision-making around what our transportation options will be. We have to work forward from the needs of particular communities through an equity lens and through, you know systemic structural transformation to make sure that our workers are moving, our students are moving, our elders are moving, like what really powers a society and economy, you got to be able to get where you got to go. It's not a subculture. I don't think that any single group gets to own that conversation. It's every single one of us that has a piece in that. I'll give you a good example. I was at Goodwill the other day. And I was rolling up on my cargo bike and I park it in the back because I've already had one e bike stolen. And there was the freight operator, you know, how they go around in those big Goodwill trucks and they drop off all the stuff at the various uh, outlets. He gets out of his truck and he comes over and he's like, I ride e bikes. That's how I commute to work. I love my e bike. Yours is really cool though. And people have in their head that there's like cyclists and then there's freight and then they fight. And I'm like, That's not how it is. You have a freight operator who makes his living driving big trucks who commutes by bicycle. Yeah. That's the reality of our world. It's not these divisions that people try to claim. He's more the norm, right? Mm -hmm. He's a more moderate central actor, I think, in our in our conversation than maybe some of the outliers.
0: Yeah, I'm glad to be hearing this type of conversation from uh, people as yourself who work in these rooms that are focusing on transportation. You know, Commissioner Maps. he oversees the city's transportation bureau and he talked a lot about making our roads safer this year. And now he's running for mayor, which you know a bit about, uh, having run for mayor a few years back. Now, how effective do you think he would be on these issues that we're discussing if he's elected?
1: Well, I have to put on my Street Trust Action Fund hat. I can't talk (laughs) about uh, candidate uh, politics under the auspices of my 501c3, the Street Trust, but we do have a Street Trust Action Fund, which does do uh, candidate endorsements. So I'll put that hat on for a minute. Uh, I have not seen a huge amount of efficacy from maps on transportation. In fact, we've seen quite a few debacles on his watch. Uh, The floated transportation utility fee. Um, you know, the, the Broadway bike lane and then Northeast 33rd and just, you know, the rising pedestrian fatalities year over year on his watch. And so just from a purely transportation standpoint, it would be hard for me to say I would champion this person as mayor based on their transportation track record. That said, we haven't seen transportation leadership from a single person on Portland City Council.
0: Yeah, I was about to ask about the other candidates, if you thought any of them would be a little bit more focused on keeping pedestrians safe.
1: I'd have to say the best one would probably be Carmen Rubio by virtue of her activities with the Port and Clean Energy Fund, right? Because what Commissioner Rubio has done is stepped up to solve problems. The PBOT budget shortfall being a really good example where the PCF is flush and PBOT is not, and so she found a way to do something that was pretty challenging, which is transferring money from a fund that was supposed to go to community groups to a bureau, which wasn't necessarily how PCF was designed. But sometimes leaders have to do hard things uh, to get the right outcomes. And I think that was a that represented courage on her part. Also, you know, just some of the things inside that climate investment plan uh, that PCF is putting out, trying to put 6,000 e-bikes, you know, um, on the streets of Portland in the next couple of years, to me, that represents forward progress and multimodal. Uh, at least options. Again, I remain concerned about the lack of safe infrastructure for people using them. And my work on some projects suggest that even if we do build things like multi-use paths uh, or say e-bike superhighways, even the crisis of unhoused people and displacement makes it very challenging too. So I think we need to have a dignity first approach to transportation and mobility generally speaking. And so people are moving through our streets with dignity, free from harm, regardless of whether they're walking, rolling, you know, pushing a shopping cart or pedaling a $5,000 e-bike, we've got to get them where they're going safely. Honestly, I think she's been the most compassionate actor on that council. So I think she would probably be best aligned with that. But again, she doesn't have much of a track record on transportation. so hard for me to say.
0: Yeah. And right now, we, like you said, we are judging uh, these commissioners on the amount of power and resources they're given now. But like, what could a mayor do? Like what levers... Uh, Are they able to or should they be able to pull to get us where we need to go?
1: Well, when I was running for mayor, it was a lot different than it's going to be for the next mayor under the new uh, system. One of the reasons that I ran for mayor was because of those uh, unilateral uh, powers vested with the Portland mayor under the commission form of government of holding all of the bureaus in tow that they would like and also controlling the city budget. But, you know, I think with the new mayor, it's going to be a little bit different. As the council gets its legs underneath it and understands the dynamics of a much more legislative body, right, where they're going to have to be finding much more agreement along a larger body of people, then I think it's going to be about vision. It's going to be about tone. It will be that more traditional mayoral role of you're really the chief ambassador of your city, right? It's been a while since we even saw a mayor pretend to ride a bike in this town, let alone actually commute by one with pride. Yeah. You know, seeing your leaders actually doing the activities that they're telling everyone else, you know, oh, this is good. But I don't even really see the current leaders even saying uh, taking transit is good. I see them bashing transit a lot from the dais at Portland City Council. So that leadership piece, I think, is going to be the most important. And then really the the agenda setting and prioritization. If you talk about transportation in a vacuum, it's not even going to hit the top 10 list of priorities for voters, whether you're talking Portland. The metro region or Oregon, and so what we have to do is tie transportation to these other things that are on voters' minds. Housing. Let's talk about that. Transportation is the second highest household cost for low-income Oregonians after their rents. Mm-hmm. And so, increasing housing costs means that gap. If we increase, you know, uh, the costs of mobility it affects people's abilities to stay in housing. So we have to think about how do we lower costs for families? How do we make sure that low income Oregonians are moving as low cost to them as possible and that we're understanding that's related to the housing crisis, not distinct from.
0: Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, is the index to inflation gas tax really our only solution? on gasoline, like all the way back in 1919, which was at the time was like, wow, innovation. And it's how we've since then been paying for road and transportation maintenance, well, the bulk of it anyhow. And But people are driving less now and getting fancy electric cars. So both at a city and state level, gas tax revenue is declining, you know? And last month, Portland City Council announced that it's planning to place the gas tax renewal back on the ballot. In May, which if passed, could renew a 10 cent per gallon tax. So my question is, first, do you think that's the right direction we should be heading? And second, what would you have them fund with that money to make some real progress here?
1: So those are two really important questions, Claudia, and let me tackle them one by one. With the preface that Oregon being at the left end of the bell curve on public policy is something that we should remember we know how to do for over 100 years, right? Right. If we were able to come up with the gas tax, then maybe we can come up with new ways of paying for things as we transition off the fossil fuel economy. Because if we meet our goals in transitioning off the fossil fuel economy on the demand side, then on the revenue side, it's going to continue to decline. And not just the gas tax, but parking revenue and other things. If we meet our multimodal goals, if we get people shifted over to public transit, for instance, all of those revenues will decline as well. The State Highway Trust Fund, which is funded by the gas tax and a couple other taxes, so. We need a good transition off the fossil fuel-based transportation economy. Now, whether you're looking at Portland or the state of Oregon, both of them need to renew gas taxes. It's essential that voters vote yes on this, but Mm -hmm. I would call it necessary and wholly insufficient in terms of how we're going to move forward. We need to do it. It's a stopgap measure. I do not think that it is sustainable, but that does not mean that we should not renew for another few years. That said, I am excited about some conversations going on at the state level about potential new revenue sources. And the one that excites me most is the VMT tax, where we could have taxes that were actually charging folks more, you know, in congested urban areas at peak times. right? It could be very, very nuanced and calibrated with low income carve outs and, even so that people who weren't in congested areas weren't paying as much, right? We could use new technology and new revenue streams to really start to calibrate a system. Again, carrots and sticks to get the behaviors you want, the outcomes you need and the revenue you need to to create the system that you want. I do think that we have to come up with, at least for now, a transition plan to get people over to a VMT tax that would would include um, a gas tax that's indexed to inflation would be a good starting point. I think that the DMV EV fees that are being proposed, I'm not a big fan, but I do think that what we should do, one, we don't want to disincentivize EV adoption. I think that's just dumb at this point when we need more and more people who are going to drive to drive at least electric cars and not internal combustion engine cars. But what if we were actually to assess that fee at the DMV based on the vehicle weight and size? Then- the deadliest vehicles, the ones that we know are contributing to increased pedestrian fatalities, would be assessed a higher fee. And you know what are heavier and more deadly? EVs. So you would capture that EV market along with some of the other deadly vehicles too. But you wouldn't be penalizing or calling out EVs as if they're not paying their fair share. Mm. And then finally, we need to stop investing in like multi-billion dollar mega projects that are gonna increase VMT and greenhouse gas emissions and make sure that when we are building major projects, they're multimodal. I would much rather see us spending billions on high-speed rail so I could get to Vancouver, BC, right? Or down to Eugene, Uh really quickly than having us be expanding, you know, roadways and interchanges for people driving cars.
0: Right. I agree fully with trying to find ways to stop relying so much on, you know, just everyone gets in their car. My concern, if one, we did go to inflation on the gas tax is that they would just use that to continue just keeping on, keeping on with very unsustainable options. And then we're getting taxed to inflation, but we're not getting paid to inflation. We're not getting, nothing else is to inflation aside from everything we have to spend for. We're already paying so much tax living here in Multnomah County. And so just as a person who's also, you know, super into looking at these options, my fear is giving the machine that doesn't already work more, more money. But I hear what you're saying that we, where else is it going to come from? But I don't know. I mean, all I'm hearing is, well, this is a stopgap measure, but I'm not really hearing that. Well, this is how we're going to use a stopgap measure to get us to all these sustainable other options that you were discussing. I mean, is that something that's being said?
1: I don't see this as actually anything other than a maintenance of the status quo. What this will do is actually keep us from falling into a gigantic bottomless pit, right? It's like either the status quo or disaster, right? So Mm -hmm. when I say stopgap, I mean that quite literally, like- between us and so much worse it's hard to imagine because if these revenues continue to decline basic maintenance just look at the streets and imagine that that just continues to decay and decay and decay or our safety programs are cut then we won't even get bike lanes that you know not thoughtful agencies can later take out it won't even get put in (laughs) in the first place right so this is what i'm talking about (laughs) Like, let's just hold the line while we figure it out. And hopefully, I I honestly think this conversation is so much bigger than City of Portland, but you raise a good point, which is what are the inflection points across which can we try to pull levers to change things? Revenue is one, but then policy programs and projects are the other side of that. So you got the revenue side and the expenditure side. And frankly, I always talk about budgets being moral documents. Controlling that city budget is why I wanted to be mayor, and it's why I always serve on committees that deal with budgets because. Getting that budget calibrated to the policies and plans on the books is critical. So governance and a healthy democracy is so important. And we don't talk about that when it comes to things like infrastructure, right? But you've got folks like Participatory Budgeting Oregon who talk about that. Well, what if if when we have these city quadrants, the quadrants got to decide how their local share of transportation revenue was spent through participatory processes, right? Like a participatory democracy means that the people have the say over the tax dollars that they put into the system as well. But only when that's through a robust democracy does that work, right?
0: Yeah. I God, that would be so amazing. If like the money followed the policies, that would be amazing. I would love that. I like ending on a high note of sorts. I know that we're taught, you know, not to... uh, to sugarcoat everything but like what are you excited about in terms of 2024 like what are we doing right i'm bullish on
1: e-bikes unlike the e-car they're cheaper like the, the average cost of an electric vehicle is out of reach for most but the average cost of an e-bike it's within reach and the extent to which these electric vehicles these micro mobility electric vehicles expand the range of people beyond what like a classic You know, or analog bike once upon a time did for really, you know, athletic, able bodied people. Mm -hmm. Wider ranges of the public have more freedom and access in ways that they haven't had before. In some cases, especially in congested urban areas, beyond what an e car would give them, right? I can get from my office at Lloyd Center to, say, Portland City Hall faster than someone who leaves there in an e car. And I don't pay for parking at either end, right? I'm not paying for gas in between. It's a truly liberatory model. And then when you add libraries and shared systems so that they're quasi-public transit, I think they're a game changer in many ways. I think Portland would be really putting itself back on the map to invest in things like an e-mobility superhighway between, like, say, gateway um, and lower Albina, right? No, like an actual, like beautiful pathway. They get super highways for cars. Like, why can't we get them for yeah. bikes? I think Portland would be cool.
0: I love that idea of connecting these two, you know, especially historically uh, disenfranchised neighborhoods through this really progressive way of
1: transportation. Well, you know, we do have a new mayor and council coming in, so maybe they will you know, take up that transformational mantle with glee and really think about stuff like that and getting us back at the left end of the bell curve. Because honestly, we're a model city, whether we like it or not, for the affirmative or the negative. And we really need to get back on track with doing good things that serve people.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Appreciate your time and your work. Hey, thanks for having us on.
1: Keep up the good work over here. We appreciate the news.
0: And now for some events happening this week. You can catch the last bit of the Portland Winter Light Festival, which runs through Saturday at several outposts throughout the city. And I keep hearing this year's has been particularly awesome. Also, the Lunar Year is starting this Saturday, and you don't want to miss out on the free opening day kickoff at the Lanzhou Chinese Garden downtown. From 9.30 to 10 a.m., you can watch a traditional lion dance. And they also started their evening lantern lightings yesterday, which will continue through March 2nd. That place is so special. If you haven't done so, you should go check it out. And the 34th Annual Cascade Festival of African Films is happening thanks to Portland Community College. What I love about this festival is you can see these films in person or online. It's one of my personal favorite Black History Month events of the city because it's also free and open to everyone. You don't have to be a student. And it'll be running through March 2nd. All event links will be in the show notes. And if you'd like to hear even more local events and news, check out our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll also throw a link to that in the show notes. Well, that's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's.